part of what's been fun to see over the last 25 years or so, 24 years in the history of Lake Hills Church, are the relationships that as a church family, God has brought to our doorstep that we had no way of knowing were going to happen. David Thomas and Sissy Goff are part of an amazing counseling ministry in Nashville, Tennessee. You can go online and see what they do for pediatric therapy and families of children and students at RaisingBoysAndGirls.com. It's an amazing, amazing ministry that we were actually exposed to through our friends in Las Vegas through the Leading and Loving It ministry that targets pastors, wives, and women in leadership and in ministry. And it was through that relationship that we met David Thomas, who's going to be speaking and preaching here this morning. But what's been amazing to see is how just like-minded, like-hearted we as a church are with what God is doing in Nashville, with what God is doing in Las Vegas, with what God is doing around the world. And so I think it's really healthy for a church family to develop the skill of hearing from God through different voices of hearing from God that are telling the same message and always coming back to Christ, but getting there through different avenues and by different roads. David Thomas is one of those guys. We are so blessed. It's been a pleasure for me to get to know David. I've gotten to kind of tag along on the Fearless Mom rocket ship. And, you know, yeah, it was so funny. Yesterday when we were here for the in-person audience, I had a couple of women stop me and go, hey, are you, are you allowed to be here? I was like, I feel like I am. I mean, kind of, you know, moral support. I'm married to the OG fearless mom. I feel like it was okay for me to be here. But David has become just an amazing friend and an amazing resource for our church family, for our family as a whole. And so I want to ask you, before he comes up here, I want to ask you to really dig in this morning, really lean in. And if you feel something kind of funny, let him know. Everybody kind of, <laughs> give me a laugh real quick. See, doesn't that feel good? That's just therapeutic in and of itself. So if you hear something, let him hear it and just make welcome. I want to ask you to stand to your feet and give a crazy Lake Hills welcome for David Thomas. incredibly kind, generous group of people, and I'm going to have a really hard time leaving your city. I have loved every moment of being here and in this church. Brandy, I want to say an enormous thank you to you that you would introduce me to these delightful folks and give me the opportunity to intersect and get to be here this morning. I'm so incredibly grateful for you and introducing me to this new friendship and I loved your words a few minutes ago, both to honor your extraordinary wife and to highlight for you as a church to know what you're doing. And having been a part of Fearless Mom for my second year in a row, it is not only a snapshot of how you are caring for moms and for families, how you're caring for people. It feels like such a picture of this church and who I have experienced and continue to experience you to be in this city. And so it is a genuine pleasure to be here. I'm so grateful I get to spend this morning with you. I'm so thankful to be invited back to Austin. I've 
said before, I'm gonna say again, I have an enormous affection for your breakfast tacos. I don't even know what to say about them. So much so that I've developed this habit that I start thinking about them on the flight from Nashville here. And my goal is always to try to have one at some point through the day, but what keeps accidentally happening is I get one at the gate just to get me to baggage claim. It's like a little snack, and then I gotta have another one on the drive home. And by the time I get to my hotel, I've had like 12. I'm just getting warmed up. I love this city. I love this church. I'm grateful to be with you all this morning. And was just shared, I'm a therapist at this really amazing place in Nashville called Daystar Counseling. I wanna give you all a quick snapshot. I think it's better to maybe see a picture of where I work to get an idea of the work I do. We work in a house rather than an office, and that was a very intentional decision for us. If any of you have ever taken kids you love to counseling, or if you've been yourself, you know it can be a scary and overwhelming experience. So we're trying to work as hard as we can to make it disarming, to help kids and families feel safe. You may also notice that all of the people who work under the roof of that house are crammed into the bottom corner and some others got their own photo, I guess you'll notice. And that's because they are, and we're very clear on the fact that they're the most sought after therapists in our practice. We use therapy dogs as a part of the work we do and obviously are a huge part of why I think kids love coming to our place. And in addition to the kids that I have the privilege of working with, I have three of my own. My wife and I, uh, our firstborn was a girl, and about a year into her life, we got pregnant for the second time around, and we were incredibly grateful. And we went midway through our pregnancy, as you do for an ultrasound. We are a little different. We said to the technician on the way in, okay, we're kind of old school. We would not like to know what we're having. We didn't know my daughter was a girl until the day she was born, so we really want to be surprised, and she agreed. I can still remember where I was standing in that room as they were scanning my wife's belly, and she looked up with this huge smile and said, I see two heads. <laughs> and I remember thinking, why in the world are you smiling if the baby has two heads? <laughs> Nothing about that felt right to me, didn't sound right. We were genuinely that surprised. We have no history of multiples in our family. My wife had not gained extra pounds. Her counts weren't different. None of the indicators that you get when you're carrying multiples were there for us. And here we are halfway through the pregnancy finding out multiples almost always come early. So I said, okay, well, in light of that news, I'm gonna lay down on the floor in a fetal position, then you tell us what we're having. She said, two boys. Yeah, we are still recovering from that news 18 years later. So I have a daughter and twin sons, and I don't know if you would agree with me or not, but I think kids are amazing teachers. I love that I spend every day, all day, with kids of different ages. In my work, I come home with my own, and I think our job as grownups is to lean into what we can learn from them, and that's really what I'd love to focus on for a few minutes in our time today. I wanna take you back to a familiar scripture that I Hope God could reveal some new things to you and me today. I wanna unpack this with you as a way of seeing what kids have to teach us. So let's look at this. This is from Matthew 18, one to four. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like 
children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I want to lean into three things within that passage that I think could have something important to say to us today. The first thing that I want to pay attention to is that Jesus called a child, and we can tell from the timeline of that passage, the child came. The child came. The child was responsive. And I don't know about you, but if you were to place yourself in that scene as an adult, and that Jesus called you out in a crowd, my guess would be there would have been some self-consciousness that would have settled in. Maybe you would have thought something like, oh, he's gonna ask me a question, I won't know the answer. Did I iron my clothes today? Whatever it may be, some self-consciousness that might make us hesitant or tentative. What happens for every one of us is around 11 to 12 years of age, we develop a self-consciousness. It's called the age of awareness. We come into this peak awareness of how we look and how we sound and do we appear incompetent and all these things that can rob us of responsiveness in a way that it didn't with this child. We lose that. The good news is we can get that back. And I think this child is reminding us of the importance of getting that back. And so I want you to think for a moment as we kind of unpack even this idea of being responsive. I think awareness can rob us of responsiveness. I think fear can also rob us of responsiveness. It can roadblock us. It can keep us from saying some of the things that we need to say. It can actually make us say more than we had planned to say. It can roadblock us in some different ways that it doesn't with kids. Many years ago, I was reminded of this. I was leading a group of second and third grade boys. We'd been together for the better part of a school year. We met on Mondays, and on this particular day, we were sitting in a circle, and one of the little guys, longstanding members in this group, shared on that Monday that over the weekend, his parents had called he and his little sister down and told them that they were going to get a divorce. And he was retelling the story to the group and as he told the story, his little voice cracked, and his eyes started to fill up with tears. And the more that happened, I began to notice that one little guy in our group, his name is Liam, who I have called an empathy ninja. This little guy is like nothing I have ever seen. His capacity to be so responsive, so compassionate, so connected to people when they're struggling. He began, I think without even being aware of scooting toward him on the floor. He just began scooting closer and closer to him, and I didn't stop him. And at one point, he was so close, his knees were touching the little boy, and by that point, this little guy was just sobbing, telling the story. And Liam looked him in the face, and he said, you are a great kid, and you're not alone. Everybody in this group is your friend. And by that point, I was in tears. And thinking to myself, I want to be that freed up. I want to be that freed up when people are in pain to get that close to them and to not care what else is going on around me when there is a need that present. Ironically, an hour later, I had a group of seventh and eighth grade kids. And it would just so happen that on that same Monday, during check-in time, one of them would share 
that their parents had just told them they were getting a divorce. And it went down a little different, as you might imagine. What do you think the response was that time? Yeah, it was silence. And here's the thing. I don't believe for a moment it's because those kids don't care about that young man who was saying, here's what's happening in my family. I don't at all. In fact, I know they care deeply. But that self-consciousness by that point has crept in in a way that would keep them from responding, in a way that would keep me from responding as naturally. And you all think about it in your own lives. If you have recently encountered someone who experienced a loss over this past year and you think to yourself, I wanna say something, but maybe I shouldn't. What if I say the wrong thing? All these different ways that we start to overthink that and step back rather than stepping forward. So that awareness and the fear can get in the way. And I mentioned it can not only cause us to say too little, but to say too much. I had another young man remind me of this truth not long ago. I saw this kid when he was a junior in high school. This young man was great kid, great student, great athlete. He was not just a great athlete. He was very likely going on to play football at a college of his choice. But his junior year, first game of the season, he experienced an injury that not only took him out of that game, it would end up taking him out of the game of football altogether. This young man would end up needing surgery and have a surgeon standing over him to say, son, I'm so sorry, but your football career is over. And as that news would be for any of us, at that point in life, it was so disorienting, like somebody yanked the rug out from underneath him. He had no sense of who he was at that point. And so he experienced some intense sadness that gave way to some depression that brought him to my office, and we spent the better part of a year together, and this brave, resilient kid fought through, and I got a call from his mom after he graduated and went away to college. She called me fall term and said, he's coming home for Thanksgiving break and would love to just check in with you, and I said, I'd love to see him. So we set up a time, he came in, it was so good to see him, and we were talking about all the things that he was facing in his new independent life, the things that every one of us face when we moved out of our homes family's homes for the very first time, and somewhere in our conversation, we ended up talking about his parents dropping him off for college, and that awkward moment when everyone becomes aware that everything's done, and it's time for the grown-ups to leave, but no one wants to say it, and he said, David, my dad finally got up the courage, and he looked at my mom, and he said, his schedule's filled out, we've set up his dorm room, Everything's in order. We need to hit the road. He said, you all say goodbye. I'm gonna pull the car around back and then we need to head home. So he and his mom walked down. His dad pulled around. His dad got out of the car to hug him one last time and he said, David, my dad was crying harder than I had ever seen him cry in my entire life. So much so that he could barely speak. He just kept looking at me and saying, I love you. I love you so much. That's all his dad could get out. And I said, how was your mom in that time? And he laughed and he said, I remember she kept giving a lot of reminders. She kept saying things like, now remember that milk in your mini fridge is gonna expire, check the expiration date. And you are the only person in charge of putting more money on your meal account. All those great reminders, moms, that you give us. She hugged him, they both got in the car, they were about to pull out and his mom rolled down the window and she looked at this boy that she loved 
And she said, don't drink, it is so dangerous. <laughs> Those were her parting words to her college son. And I wanna tell you all this. I mentioned I spent a year with this young man. I spent a lot of time with his parents and they're remarkable people. They're intentional, thoughtful, and I think I'm a lot like both of them. I think when I'm at my best as a parent, I'm parenting more out of love like that dad, a posture of love. I'm more responsive. And in moments of fear, I look a lot more like that mom and I'm more reactive. Any one of us could be in either of those spaces in any moment with any person. I think fear can roadblock us if we're not aware and rob us of the kind of responses we wanna be about. And you all, I think that's been happening on a whole new level in the past year. There's a lot to experience fear around going on in our world at this point. And I have never seen people, and I'm sad to say believers included in that statement, more reactive in person, on social media, all over the place in ways that I don't think the world is getting an opportunity to see evidence of the kind of love that we wanna be about. And I'm reminded of, I love the words of Madeline Lingle who has gone on to be with God. I love when she said, we will draw people to Christ. We will draw people to Christ, not by loudly discrediting what they believe, not by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely, they cannot help but want to be drawn to the source of it. There's our calling as believers right there. In this moment, more than ever, I think, to be showing the world a light that is so lovely, they can't help but be drawn to it. So I want you to think of that as we think about the great challenge that I think kids give us to be responsive, to be less reactive, and to step forward. I think kids also remind us to be open. I want you to lean into that part of the scripture that says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Focus on those words, unless you change. I think that's one of the things kids remind us. You all think about it, every day during a school year, Kids wake up and their job in life is to be a student. Their job is to learn. And we forget to be students. We forget to learn. We forget to be open and growing and how incredibly important that is. I want you all to even think about the many phrases, common phrases that speak to that. You can't teach an old dog what? New tricks, absolutely. He's set in his... Ways. Yes, all these different phrases that speak to that reality for us as grown-ups where we can lose that. Sadly, we forget the importance of it. I want you to think for a minute, like, what is something you have learned lately? And if it's hard to answer that question, that's important to pay attention to. I'm so grateful that throughout my life, every summer when I was a kid, my mom would pack up my sister and I and drive us to the public library and she would sign us up for the book club in our little community. We had to read books all summer and kind of work toward these goals. As a grown-up, I'm so incredibly grateful for that because I became a lifelong reader out of that passion. I also think back as a grown-up and a parent myself, she never asked us if we wanted to. She never said, do you think it'd be a good idea to sign up for a book club? She simply said, 
get in the car, it's time for book club. And I love that she did because I do think something in that being a lifelong reader made me a lifelong learner. I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful for podcasts. I'm learning so much, I feel like I'm cheating, like I'm reading more books than I'm actually reading because I can be on a walk or making breakfast or doing yard work and be listening and learning something as well. I want you to think about where you could do more learning, good learning. What relationships, what context, what tools, what resources allow you to do that? And I'll tell you one for me in the last 20 years, I have been studying a tool called the Enneagram. Are any of you familiar with the Enneagram? Yes, all right, lots of you are. If you're not, I wanna spell it for you. So you write this down, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. I love this tool. It is just that, it's a tool, it's not the end all be all, but it's a great tool, a great resource that as a therapist I've seen be a game changer for families. In the context of marriage, in the context of parenting, we use it as a resource with our staff so we understand each other better as coworkers. You're gonna figure out more about your hardwiring, kind of the directions you've been, the way you see the world. And it's, again, been invaluable. I couldn't recommend it enough. If you wanna get started, there's a great book called The Road Back to You written by Suzanne Stabile and Ian Morgan Cron. A great podcast that I love is called The Enneagram Journey with Suzanne Stabile. Be a good place to start, just to begin learning a little bit more. But Here's the Cliff Notes version. We're all a number between one and nine, and each of those numbers has strengths and struggles. I won't ask any of you your number, but I'll tell you I'm a one on the Enneagram. And the name given to the one is the reformer or the perfectionist. I do not like that word at all, but it is a fit for me. We see all the things that are wrong in the world and we wanna make it right. We bend toward order and control we love to manage things and sometimes people, which is just really never a win in marriage and parenting when you wanna to try to manage people, I have learned. Now think on that. And you all, I think as I've studied this, I've started to see more and more evidence of where it plays out in my life, in ways where it trips me up, in ways where it helps me. And I think about the fact that when I'm at my best as a father in my oneness, I can bring a lot of vision and leadership to my family. And when I'm at my worst, I can be a bit of a drill sergeant. And I can remember one Saturday morning in my kitchen, my kids were little, like five and seven, in their PJs with good bed head. My wife was making pancakes, the house smelled like syrup, and I walked in after I'd gotten out of the shower and I said, okay, everybody listen up. We got a lot to do today. I'm gonna take you two to the soccer game. Mom's gonna take you to the birthday party. We're gonna meet back at the house. Your grandparents will be here, and I was, going through all these things that were gonna take place while my poor children were just trying to enjoy pancakes. And my sweet wife, standing at the stove, flipping pancakes, put the spatula down, and she walked over to the middle of the room, and she got really close to me. She put her hand around the back of my neck, and she said, sweetheart, you are the only person in this house who is interested in your agenda right now. <laughs> one of the most loving things anyone has ever said to me. And I'm so thankful to be surrounded by people who will see evidence of those things about me sometimes that I can't see about myself. Who are those people for you? Who are the people? What are the resources and tools? What are the contexts where you have an opportunity to grow 
and to change and to become a student? Where do you need to grow? If it feels difficult to answer that question, I want you to really sit with that this afternoon and this next week. Where do you need to grow? I would say to you lastly about this tool, the Enneagram, like it has been a game-changing tool in terms of spiritual formation and anchoring me strongly to my need for Christ and seeing some unique things. I want you to think about where you can grow more. Be open. The last idea that I think we can take away from that scripture is to be humble. To be humble. Whoever becomes humble, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You all know this. I'm just here to remind you of this truth again today. Kingdom living is upside down living, isn't it? The last will be first, the first will be last. Think back to the Beatitudes. You're blessed when you mourn, you're blessed when you're persecuted, you're blessed when you hunger and thirst. All throughout Scripture, we're reminded of those truths. And we're reminded of humility. But again, you all, I don't think we've demonstrated less of that than in the past year. And I want us to remember that this morning as this kid is reminding us of the importance of that, as we're being reminded in the truth of Jesus' words. And I think it's important that we really do pay attention to an accurate definition of humility. I think so many times we just tend to think about it as less than or I think many people even interpret it as being self-deprecating, and I don't think that's what humility is at all. So I wanna talk with you about what I think is true humility. I think that being humble is understanding your value as it relates to other people's value. I think it allows us to think about the dignity of other people in a really important and needed way. I think it's part of the wisdom of Proverbs 10, 19. You all know this, the wise measure their words. When I'm thinking about the dignity of other people, I can't help but think about measuring my words. James 1, 19 to 20 reminds us to be quick to listen, slow to speak. Our world is in desperate need of believers who are quick to listen and slow to speak right now. In person, on social media, in so many different moments. Quick to listen, slow to speak. I think humility is a place of strength and not weakness. I think that strength of responsiveness as opposed, it doesn't take a lot of strength to be reactive. Any one of us can be as dysregulated as a toddler in any given moment. That doesn't take strength. Regulation is effortful. It involves effort. And I want you to think about the strength and the humility of Christ as we're reminded in that beautiful passage in Philippians 2, 8, 9, I wanna reread this to remind you all of this truth this morning. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. He humbled himself, became obedient to the cross. The strength of that is extraordinary. The sacrifice of that humility is extraordinary, and we are the recipients of that. Let's live like the recipients of that, that I think would call us into more responsiveness, openness, and humility. The last thing that I would say and where I'll leave you all, I think humility postures us to see our need. I think it connects us to our need for Jesus in an extraordinary way. 
as those recipients. And when I think about kids who have taught me things over the last decades, I think about one young man who has actually spent a lot of time in my home. He's one of my son's good friends. We'll call this kid Jack to protect the innocent. Jack spent a lot of time in our home and Jack is a fascinating and hilarious kid. Jack is one of those kids who you never have to wonder what he's thinking because he will always share exactly what's on his mind. And he's very direct. And I've had a thousand moments of laughing hysterically at Jack when he's been in our home. And we as his parents and our group of parents swap Jack stories all the time. And when Jack was in second grade, he did an overnight with one of our good friends and the dad called me and said, I got a great Jack story. He said, we were just at dinner. He was in the second grade at the time. We were about to have dinner and I said, Jack, because you're our guest, we'd love to offer if you would say the blessing tonight before our meal. And he said, I would love to, Mr. J. So they all held hands and bowed their heads and there was silence. And then there was more silence. And the dad thought to himself, you know, I probably should have just said, you can start whenever you're ready. So he looked up and he said, Jack, just whenever you're ready, you go right ahead. Bowed his head again and there was silence and then a lot more silence. And the dad looked up and Jack was still bound and he said, Jack, whenever you're ready, you go right ahead. And at about that moment, Jack looked up and he said, I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. And I love the honesty of that. And don't we lose that? Don't we lose the ability to be that honest? That may have happened for you this morning, you may have passed someone, you're in a real place of struggle, and they said, how are you? And you said, I'm great, I'm doing awesome. That may have happened this past week. I think it's what we do. We don't feel that freedom to say, you know what, this week, today, this season, I got nothing. That humility and honesty that I think is needed in order for us to fully be the body of Christ, so that like my little friend Liam, we can move toward each other. And it's also important for us to be able to say that boldly and honestly as a way to connect us back to how desperately we need Jesus, and we do. I had a mom in my office years ago who said, David, I just wanna be Jesus to my children. And I looked at her and I said, you can't be. You can't be, none of us can. But what you can be is a mom who needs Jesus in front of your children. That's what they need. That's what all of our kids need, for us to be people who need Jesus in front of them. That we, like my amazing friend Jack, can just say, right now in this moment I got nothing and I need everything Jesus has to offer me. In fact, if I were in Nashville right now, my home church, my pastor and friend at the end of our service, when it's time for the benediction, ask us all to stand and each week he'll say, palms up. And his reason for that, he would explain, is that as the benediction is given, that blessing, you know, benediction is a blessing, if our palms are open, it reminds us that we need the fullness of that blessing. It also reminds us that this is what we bring to that blessing. This is what I'm offering, nothing. Jesus is offering everything, everything I need. That has been so impactful for me that I've started praying on a daily, not just on Sunday in the benediction, but praying daily with my palms open to remind me of that. I need everything Jesus has to offer. 
And it's not my job to come to the table with everything. Matthew 11 reminds us, come with what? Weariness, being heavy hearted, come when you're burdened. He's going to give me rest. I don't have to muster up that rest. He will give that to me. He will give me the capacity to be more responsive, the ability to be postured in an open, humble way. And I'm so thankful I live in the company of so many kids who remind me of that, and I could bring that reminder to you all today. And I would love to close by just praying over you. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of being in this space. I cannot thank you enough for this church that my consistent experience of being in this space is that this church is a light in this city and beyond this city that is so lovely. It is drawing people to you. And I pray it would continue to. I pray you would equip Mac and Julie and the staff and the members of this church to be about that work of being a light so lovely. Father, I thank you that I've had the great privilege of being in this space with this congregation on this day. Father, thank you for all the kids in our lives, our own children, the children around us, our neighbors who have so much to teach us. Help us to just pay attention. Thank you that you called a child to you to use that as an illustration of who you want us to be. Remind us of these truths today and I pray these things in your name. Amen.